0: Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner,
1: Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us at the True Sports PT Podcast. This conversation was an easy one. Uh, Dr. Gulada makes it just easy to shoot the bull, as we say, about shoulder surgery, about being an elite-level athlete, as well as being an elite-level surgeon. Um, and Dr. Gulata is the head surgeon for the New York Mets, um, as well as a very well-regarded and research physician up at HSS. Um, I, I originally met Dr. Gulada down at MESIS, which is just a, a gathering of um, the mid-Atlantic shoulder experts, and saw him present very early in the morning, and he was just outstanding, really excited to have him on the pod. You're going to learn a ton about really an eye opening outlook as to how we operate and also dr gulata's knowledge of the rehab world was also very impressive so um certainly obviously encourage you to listen and and really encourage you to share some feedback here tell us what you loved about what what dr gulata said tell us what maybe you didn't what we could do better we're always looking for feedback so that we can create the absolute best product for you along those lines true sports is nearly obsessed with providing the best place for a patient to rehab as well as a pt to rehab that patient so if you're looking for rehab or if you're looking to join us as a sports physical therapist feel free to reach out true sports pt on instagram just shoot us a dm is the very best way to get in touch with us and so without further ado here's dr Gulada.
0: Wow! Oh, yeah thanks yoni for having me it's a real honor and privilege to be here Um, I don't know. I don't know how far back you want to go. I grew up uh, a kid in the south suburbs of Chicago. I have the classic orthopedic surgeon story of tearing my ACL as a freshman in high school. At the time, was put together by an amazing orthopedic surgeon, came back, played the rest of my high school career. Uh, The rest, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins and played football there. I don't think that had to do with the ACL or the recovery from that. I think that was probably just of my own athletic ability, uh, pin me to go to Johns Hopkins as opposed to Notre Dame or something on, uh, Saturday afternoons on TV. But, up. uh, but what it did do is it sparked an interest of the fact that this is a really cool combination of a number of my passions. So it'd be sports, it'd be science, it'd be the ability to help people and get them back to lead active, healthy lifestyles. Um, and so once I had that injury, uh, kind of put the blinders on and knew not only did I want to be a doctor, but I wanted to be an orthopedic doctor, an orthopedic surgeon, a sports, a sports doctor. So did uh, college at Hopkins, played football there, um, went to med school up in Harvard, and then uh, matched at hospital for special surgery for my orthopedic residency and then stayed there for a sports uh, fellowship. And then uh, when I was finished, I was fortunate enough to travel both in Europe and then go back to Boston for a total of six months, seeing different shoulder surgeons uh, more or less around the world and getting kind of the um, greatest tips and tricks from each of those. And then, and then since then, I've been in practice um, at Hospital for Special Surgery since. I'm now the chief of the Sports Medicine or the um, Shoulder and Elbow Division of the Sports Medicine Institute at HSS. And then starting last season, I was named the head uh, team orthopedic surgeon for the Mets. Um, kind of, uh, I would say stumbled upon it. It's a right place, right time. I suppose they were looking for, um, a doctor to, uh, be more present, be cover, uh, games, uh, go to spring training, things like that. Somebody that had particular interest in shoulder and elbow, uh, orthopedic care. And, uh, and so I, I, I said I would do it. And now it's, it's just been the one full season last year. We're starting spring training's done. We're about to start. The regular season this Thursday. And it's been, um, it's been an amazing, amazing experience so far. So busy, busy, definitely, uh, two full-time jobs. You have your job, you know, the day job as an orthopedic surgeon Have my family life, and then also have pretty much a full-time job as a orthopedic baseball doctor. So that
1: sounds like three full-time jobs. Yeah. Um, but Jesus, this is why I texted you that your resume is insane. So I don't think you stumbled into this. You don't stumble into Harvard. So congratulations on being named the, the Mets head surgeon. Um, that is pretty awesome. Why shoulder, though? Why would you go shoulder?
0: Yeah, there, there was essentially right. Because I, I tore up my knee and was interested in knee early on. And then really what I became interested in during residency and then even in fellowship as well is is the fact that the shoulder... Uh, there's still a lot of things that we don't know about it. I mean, quite frankly, the knee goes forward, it goes backwards. That's about it. Maybe it twists a little bit, depending on who you talk to. But um, there's like a couple of ligaments and a meniscus, you know, in there. So they or two menisci. But uh, there's not a whole lot of complex, I think, um, biomechanics that are happening with it. Versus the shoulder, the degrees of freedom, the amount of muscles that all have to work in a concerted effort to be able to stabilize it. The soft tissue static constraints around the shoulder. If any of those things go haywire the whole system starts to break down. So that to me is very very intriguing. Um I thought it was a black box. I thought I could um I was in, I thought there was some academic uh contributions I can make towards it. Um you know, I'll tell you it, it stumble upon is I did spend a lot I still do spend a lot of my career doing also shoulder replacements as well. And the same thing, shoulder replacements when you compare it to hip and knee replacements is pretty pretty new. And I mean all of the things that they figured out for hip and knee replacements years ago are things that we're just now figuring out for shoulder replacements. So it was a, uh, a wild frontier.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's come such a long way, even since I've been rehabbing. Um, and I always say the shoulder is so fascinating. It's my favorite joint because it's a freaking miracle it ever works. So it's just, it's fascinating. So, and I got to do that without a scalpel. I can't imagine with a scalpel. Um, okay. Tell us and this is a collection of the world's best sports PTs that are listening to this. What was your welcome to the Major League Baseball moment?
0: <laughs> so my welcome to Major League Baseball is, and this is pretty public knowledge, obviously, is that uh, you know a few weeks into spring training, our star pitcher breaks a scapula throwing the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I didn't even really fully appreciate was possible, that you can break your scapula throwing a ball. And, and right there, it was an understanding that when you're dealing with Major League Baseball players or professional athletes at that level in any sport, you're really dealing with the, the top 0.00001% of the g- athletic g- gene pool there. And one thing that I think these guys have been able to master through the years and been selected out for is their ability to just own their entire kinetic chain. They're able to put every ounce of force that their body's able to generate and translate into a baseball that goes 102 miles an hour or hitting a ball that goes 450 feet or so. And, and, and so such to the point that if, to your point, if anything starts to go wrong, they start to have this whole chain reaction. So that to me was, and, and and you have to kind of take care of, I think athletes at that level to see that sort of pathology. And, and for me, the, the take home message for that was, was that as extreme as it was, it was a variation, at least how I've thought about it in my own mind. It's a variation of things we see in a lot of pitchers, like lower level pitchers as well. So what'll happen, as you know, and I'm sure your audience knows as well, is that if your arms going 102 miles an hour plus or enough with enough forward velocity and torque to be able to generate 102 miles an hour into the baseball, that's got to stop at some point. You got to stop it. And so your whole posterior musculature, your posterior cuff suffers this eccentric injury to it or eccentric load that it sees. Um, and so we'll see a lot of infraspinatus strains. And then, and now we're seeing a lot of latissimus tears and strains as well, um, which are all de- deceleration injuries, really. So this guy was, he, didn't, he had a variation, I think, of a deceleration injury. It's just that he tried to avulse his infraspinatus off of the infraspinatus fossa on the body of the the scapula, you know? So, so it's just, it's, so they're interesting thought experiments because if you understand the physiology that's happening, you can understand why these injuries happen. It's just that they happen in an extreme level and then how you treat them. There's not much by way of a playbook. Sure. There've been other players that have done that before, but I mean, you can probably count on both hands, you know, how many that's happened to. So what's the playbook for return to play for somebody with that type of injury? You don't know. You just you get together with a bunch of smart people. You try to have some objective based way to hit milestones, a range of motion and strength, you know, after you already have evidence that they've healed the initial injury um, and you figure it out. You do the best you can. So,
1: yeah, it's, yeah, it's super cool. And it's like I always say you walk into an evaluation room or, you know, into um, any room in which the patient walks in and you have like a list of things that could possibly be wrong. It's just when you deal with athletes like this, that list just has to be larger yeah. to, to try to figure out what could possibly be bothering them. So uh, we were talking a little bit earlier before we kind of hit the record button of your take and your outlook on specifically labral tears and slap tears in pitchers. And you open my eyes um, as to the way you approach it, because I think it's certainly unique. Maybe that's why you're the Mets doctor. But um, I'm going to I'm going to give you a case. Um, and you're going to just kind of hopefully walk us through just the way you think clinically. I think that would bring a huge amount of value to our audience and more importantly to me um, so, that, so that I could get better today. OK, so 20 year old St. John's college pitcher walks in to your room um, and to your shoulder pain, mostly when he drops back towards layback, been present for three months. He tried some rehab with his athletic trainer, with a PT, no luck um his velocity has started to tick down as his pain has started to go up he saw the team physician of st john's hopefully you don't know that guy or maybe it's you but let's say you don't know that guy he put him on a medral dose pack um he injected him two weeks later no help now he's seeing dr larry gulato yeah what does that initial visit look like for you
0: yeah, I mean, you already answered some of the questions. You really want to get a good feel of how did this start? Was it one pitch that set this off, or did it just gradually come on over time? The location of the pain, you mentioned it's anterior. Um, you, know, where it, uh, you know, where it occurs in terms of his motion. He said it's at the, the late cocking, the layback position or so. That's all helpful. Um, obviously you want to know what he's done up until that point. And really the question for me and that athlete is have they really had a good opportunity of rest and rehabilitation, you know, have they really, so when you get the Medrol dose pack or you have the injection, is that, a, is that go in with at least probably depending on how fired up they are with the original injury, but are they going through a, probably a three to four week period of no throw? Um, and, and then are they starting to institute pain-free, uh, you know, an overhead rehab program or so. Um, and if they, if they haven't, you know, th- those are all things I want to know from the history. Uh, not to get off too much on a tangent, we could talk about this a little more in a minute, but I, I do think my biggest um, concern with the youth athletes and St. John's obviously a big program, Division I program, they have really smart people that are helping them there. So I would think that they probably did all these things, you know, but the high school kid is not probably getting plugged in with these sorts of things they're, they're doing things in a makeshift fashion where they hurts they don't throw for a week uh they go back they throw again it hurts for you know then it hurts and then they go back they don't throw for two weeks and then maybe to do some physical therapy but they're doing the little old lady therapy i call it where they're pulling bands and doing their scapular retractions and then they go back and throw again and by the time i see them it's the same thing it's been four or five months they might have missed the bulk of a season and on paper, they've done all of those things. They've done the check I've rested, check I've done rehab, check I've done an interval throwing program, but they've never done them in a um, they've never done them in a very organized fashion. You know, it's been a scatter So I really spent a lot of time, especially with the younger athletes, really, you know, questioning their parents. Okay, what's the timeline here and what exactly did you do and when? And let's talk about this and let's see how things broke down. And then, and then on their exam, going to that, um, you know, I want to know where their tendon to palpation. I want to know if they get some pain over their AC joint. I think that's a real easy fix and want to know that. I'm pretty relieved if that's where the, the pain's coming from. Biceps tendon too. A lot of them will get biceps pain. That's pretty easy. Look at their gross cuff strength. If it's anterior pain, maybe they got a weak belly press or their subscap. They get a subscap strain or so. We'll see that. Um, and I uh, want to look at their scapula as well. Um, and, uh, make sure they have not getting dyskinesia. The scapula was not all over the place. If they, if they are, that's a pretty easy thing to target with rehab. Uh, and so, and then the other thing too, the part that I think is probably the most, I think hard to diagnose on an exam, but probably the absolute most common is that when you get them way back in that layback position, you know, is that are, am I recreating the pain in that scenario? And if I am, it it probably means more often than not that they have some subtle anterior instability. That's what's happened is I'm getting back in, you know, we call it a layback position, but the rest of the orthopedic community calls it a position of apprehension that patients with instability will start to get uncomfortable with. And if they're getting that pain anteriorly, I'm starting to worry now more, more about a capsular strain anteriorly. And if they're getting pain posteriorly, I'm worried about internal impingement. But those are all part of the same spectrum in my mind. So, yeah.
1: now, now you mentioned you're hoping it's biceps, um, long head of the biceps involvement. How do you tease that out?
0: Yeah, with an injection typically. I mean, I think there's some pain on palpation. You can start to do your, bi- I call it, I call it any of those tests for like O'Brien's, for example, bicipital labral complex tests, because I think it's hard to tease out what's the biceps and what's the labrum in those scenarios. But the reality is, is to me, they're kind of, you know, in, there's, they're interrelated, but I been think a we'll see a lot of patients that get biceps tendon pain, and those are pretty. You can inject those, and you can then go. That's a pretty quick downtime, and they usually respond, provided that they don't have another, you know, kinematic problem that they need to work on.
1: Okay, so I, I love where you're going with this rehab. How do you gauge whether they've done rehab properly? What questions are you asking?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I asked him to take, take me through it. Like the 30,000 foot view, what have you been doing? And, and really, I want to know, I'm like, have you, um, have you done plyo balls at any point throughout? Like if you, has the therapist done manual strengthening with you or so, and have you really been strengthening, uh, your shoulder in particular, a, in positions in which you're going to use it as an overhead athlete and have you been doing it throughout the entire course of, or range of your motion? So I see, especially these younger kids, they have tremendous amounts of range of motion, but they're not able to own that range of motion because they don't have the strength to be able to control it. And so, doing a structured program that's allowing them to work on strengthening and owning that range of motion to me is, is the key. And I would say, almost none of them have done that. We ask that? them; they pull. Who bands. taught you this? Yeah.
1: Where did you learn that? <laughs>
0: Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. This is a physical therapy podcast, right?
1: That's good. Yeah. You're saying the right things. You studied the, uh, the right stuff before you came on here. Um, that's awesome. Okay. So say they haven't done that. You're going to make a PT referral. Yeah. This kid, St. John's pitcher, 20 years old. He's from wherever, right? How do you find the PT to send them to or does that happen?
0: No, that's a great point. So I lean on my, my on our therapist. So, you know, we have a handful of, we call them overhead specialist therapists at hospital for special surgery. So I call them when I'm, I have this kid in my office and I literally call them and I say, listen, I got a kid I need you to see. And, and they say, yes, you know, send them down. And so, and I tell the parents, I go, listen, you're going to have to maybe go to the city. You're going to see, um, you know, one of my guys Um, And I don't think you need to go three times a week, but I need for them to do an evaluation. I need for them to come up with a program for you. And then I need for them to, if they know somebody in your area, get you set up with that person. And if not, then they need to communicate with the person you're going to work with and you need to continue to check in. You know, the nice thing now is I think a lot of it we can check in with on uh, uh, Zooms or telehealth visits or so. So I think the idea of, let's say, they don't live in the New York area, they go back to Florida, for example, um, uh, then we, they can be checking in with our therapist, um, to making sure they're doing the right things and they're progressing. So it's better. It's better. It's still not as good as I'm sure, uh, hands-on eval. And there might be some subtle things like the scapula that you can't fully appreciate on a zoom. Um, but it's better than anything we've had in the past.
1: Gotcha. Uh, one more piece on your evaluation and that is you mentioned scapular dyskinesis. Mm -hmm. I think you said something like an easy fix. Tell me what you're looking for with scapular dyskinesia.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, you're, it's right. That was maybe, I guess my point on that to say it's an easy fix is it's something identifiable that's objective that we can work on, you know? And that's kind of, if you come in and you have great kinematics, full range of motion, excellent strength, and you just tell me it hurts when you throw, like, I don't know what we're working on. Then, mm-hmm. you know, well, then it might be a structural problem that then, yeah, you bought yourself a surgery, but like, I'm looking for objective problems that are amenable to something for us to work on. Like, you come with a big internal rotation contracture. We can work on that. You know, that's not because you got a labral tear necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I'm, all I'm looking for is I'm looking for asymmetry. And so I'm looking for, i stand the shirts off. I stand behind them, have them lift their arms up to the air, have them go out to the side even will occasionally have them do a push-up against the wall. And I'm looking for any asymmetry I can see on the, on the affected shoulder versus the other shoulder.
1: So I love that my very small and humble pushback on that is this guy's been throwing a baseball for 20 years. It's yeah. going to be asymmetric. Yeah. yeah. So anything else you're looking for other than asymmetry?
0: Yeah. That I mean, I will tell you that is the, that's the big one. That's the, okay. the big yeah. one. And, and seeing, making sure, well, I guess you say they have, you know, their scapular control. I think more for me, It's more, um, it's usually, again, these sort of underdeveloped kids or so that we're seeing, either the young college kid or a high school kid that just um, needs to put some effort on their core strength. And they have nothing that's happening on their torso whatsoever, more or less. And Mm -hmm. the scapula is sort of like all over the place or so. Mm -hmm. That's typically what we see.
1: Okay. Awesome. Um, Okay. This um, athlete goes to HSS, you know, the overhead specialist he's seeing, mm-hmm. he comes back six weeks later, he took time off. He picked up that ball through again, it hurts at layback. Mm-hmm. What do you do?
0: All right, well, so then I assume so and you telling me that, the, so we're going now his MRI, his MRI shows, you're telling me a slap tear, it's slap tear.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, everyone else.
0: You know, if you're at a point, I think that most of these programs really take about three months to figure out any non-operative management of a shoulder is going to be at least three months to be able to go back to pitch for the most part until you tell me that you failed it. All right. And that's a period again, a shutdown, inflammatory control, pain-free, initiate overhead throwing, uh, rehab, and then start an interval throwing program, you know, and if you tell me that they can't make it. So then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull my chair up and I'm going to sit down and we're going to have a long conversation about the fact that, yes, at this point, you fail not operative management. You know that your chance of being able to go back pain-free now without a surgery is 0% because that's what you've proven to yourself and us. Um, so now we're going to talk about doing a surgery to go in, uh, do a labor repair. Uh, I, will do, I always talk to them about the possibility of doing a biceps tenodesis. In the chance that you get in and the biceps looks terrible. Um, we always, at least we've had that conversation beforehand. But I don't summarily do a biceps tenodesis, particularly in a young thrower. Um, and and we're going to probably debride the undersurface of the cuff is, is what the, the plan is going to be. And 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 I'm going to hang crepe. And I'm going to say, listen, historically speaking, when we do these types of procedures, best case scenario, we're getting kids back to their previous level of competition at around 80% or so. So better than the 0%. I'm giving you right now, but certainly not the hundred percent that you hope or want me to, to say now at the time of the surgery, what I think, and you gotta be a little careful with this from a technical standpoint. So is, is this idea that I'm going to test their stability and I'm going to see how much anterior laxity they have. And I'm gonna see what the capsule looks like anteriorly, because I think a lot of these, again, guys, they're getting in this problem because they're getting some micro anterior instability. That's what's happening. And so what I've learned from Hiro Sagaya, who is a, uh, he's the, kind of the, you know, preeminent uh, shoulder surgeon, ortho surgeon to the Japanese baseball players in in Japan, is what I'll do if the pathology warrants it is I will put an anchor um, anterior to the biceps. And what I do is tighten up the middle glenohumeral ligament just a little bit, okay, just a little bit.
1: What is that? I I love that because that doesn't sound like a measurement.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a smidgen. It's a pinch. A pinch. Yeah, it's a smidgen. That's right. And it is an art. And I I say that because you obviously don't want to over-tighten them anteriorly. But I do think that that anterior laxity is part of the pathology for why they're not able to rehab through this. Um, And I think it does need to be addressed. And I think not addressing that's one of the reasons why isolated slap tears have had a bad track record in the past. Um, if you look back on it, some of the be- if you talk to Jimmy Andrews, he'll tell you that some of the best results he's had in throwers are those that he did thermal on their anterior capsule for. And if you think about it, now, some of them, it was a disaster because they burned the capsule and you know, trashed the shoulder. But when it worked, it was magical. Now, it, when it worked, and if you think about it, it's kind of a microscopic solution to have to do the thermal and shrink the capsule to up to a micro instability problem, because what doesn't work is going in and doing a macro stabilization procedure where you start to put anchors anteriorly, you start to placate the capsule or tighten up the labor and the anterior aspect. If that's You're the dead case, dead. the kid's never going to throw again. He's never yeah. going to be able to get the lay back okay. to be able to generate velocity. So you need that somewhere in between and somewhere in between. is We've kind of gotten to the point where everybody says you never put an anchor anterior to the biceps. Never, 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 never. And I get it. Like there's a lot of anatomic variation in that location. The labrum is often not attached normally in the anterior superior quadrant. And if you do that and you're fixing a normal variant, you're going to you're gonna cause a problem. But I think now when we have these knotless anchors, we have low profile uh, anchors, we're able to kind of sneak in and do more, Elegant or fine-tuned surgery in that location, so I don't think it's an absolute deal breaker. So, go in, repair the labrum, um, and then, and then, if they do have the put anterior instability, do a Nip Tuck, MGHL plication, give them a little anterior stability.
1: How different is that what you just described from uh, a softball pitcher who has a torn labrum?
0: Yeah. That's different to me. So that, to me, I think, and I could be, it's something that I haven't seen nearly as much as as the baseball players. So take this, and I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are on it as well. I think some of those, I think the main pathology in those players are traction on the biceps. So I think them, they get like this traction when they throw it on their hand and the biceps literally pulls the, the labrum off. And those are patients or players in which I've been a little bit more, I'm going to say aggressive, but I've thought more about doing a biceps tenodesis on them. So with the thought being is that I can, you know, take away that distraction force on there.
1: Okay. So, awesome. Uh, what I, are I think, your thoughts on that? How yeah, do you no, think? Those... I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm also going to rehab them so much differently. I don't care about their layback. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think that changes the whole, the whole picture. Um, and that makes sense why you would approach it differently surgically. How about your, um, your standard weekend warrior has a yeah. slap tear when, when you say, okay, I'm going to pull a smidge on the pitcher. Does yeah. that change totally? If it's a weekend warrior,
0: 100%, 100 So now we're talking about, so I spend a lot of my day with residents and fellows. So all my day with residents and fellows. And what I tell them is I think one of, we talked about kind of why shoulder one of the beautiful things I think about shoulder is that we still have a bit of a European model where we do one joint Kind of cradle to grave, if you will, and and so I spend so I see young athletes with pristine shoulders who have injuries to it, and then I start to see people at the other end of the spectrum who really have arthritis. Okay, and what I spend a lot of my day doing is talking to the the, the patient and my residents and fellows about trying to figure out where that forty or fifty year old or even thirty year old is on that spectrum. Okay, there are definitely fifty year olds few and far between, but that have pristine shoulders who have an acute injury. And I fix slaps on them, you know, if they were fine, they have a weightlifting injury or something like that. And then they come and they got a huge slap tear and they have symptomatic. Like I'll do that. I don't think that patient automatically needs a biceps tenodesis. Um, So, but, but here's what I think is the pitfall for that though, is I think by far more of these people are down a degenerative spectrum than anybody wants to admit And I think just like a degenerative meniscal tear happens in the knee, these degenerative labral tears happen in the shoulder. And I'm very hesitant. I think usually they need a cortisone shot or plus or minus and they need physical therapy too. And they kind of need to understand, quite frankly, that, like, they're not a spring chicken anymore and that the shoulder might ache. And if this is the first time you've had something bother you in your body and you're 35 years old, congratulations, you've won the game. Like, get used to it because it's only going to get worse, you know, over time. So, I mean, that's a long-winded answer to say, I think that once you get into the weekend warriors and you have a slap, it's, I think there's usually, it's usually part of a degenerative process. It's usually hard to completely solve that with a surgery surgery. I tell that to patients. I always make them fail therapy, plus or minus a shot first. I want to make sure the range of motion is normal. A lot of them will come in with a subtle frozen shoulder, too. Um, and that's really what's bugging them. And I that is a rehabable that. problem. I see they're stiff. i boom, it's great. We solved your problem. You need to, you need to figure that out. Yeah. So.
1: Uh, what sucks is when the doc doesn't see that, yeah. operates, puts yeah. them in a sling for six weeks. I'm dead. We don't have no, a no, shot in hell. No,
0: No, no, no doubt. No doubt. I tell people basically with all those things. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some cuff tears and things like that. They might come in a little bit stiff. It is what it is. You want to get to the cuff and you fix it and you sort of deal with whatever you got to deal with down the road. Um, But any of the labral pathology, I say there's no reason why your labrum is keeping you from getting full range of motion. There's no reason for that. And I won't operate on your labrum unless you have full range of motion, you know? Uh And so, yeah. And if you get full and the chances are, quite frankly, if you get full range of motion, you're probably not going to be painful enough to even want me to do the surgery.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Remember if there's a labral tear, they should have more motion.
0: Yeah. Well, that's right. That's right. right. So that's right. um, Well here, I'll tell you just real quick. And I know this, we're talking more about the baseball stuff right now, but I think one of the huge pitfalls are the posterior labral tears too. So we'll see a ton of 40 and 50 year olds that come in with posterior labral tears. And to me, that's, that's a B2 glenoid in the making. Like that's a head. That's starting the sublux backwards. It's starting this whole degenerative process. You know. And if you're a sports surgeon, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's a posterior labral tear. We need to repair it. And if you're uh, you know, a shoulder doctor who does some arthroplasty, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's going to be a B2 glenoid at some point. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to put myself in the middle of that natural history. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Because what happens to you, you tighten the posterior labrum in that patient and you just accelerate their arthritis. It just sends it through the roof. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. I mean, that sounds like my offensive lineman, right? Yeah, correct, correct. And and so, how are you approaching those? What are you repairing there?
0: Yeah, so those, I think. So if you're young, that's a kid that you you'd say you're probably on the early, you know, athletic injury end of the spectrum. Pretty normal shoulder. You have an injury. Um, We're gonna and your injury is a posterior labral tear. You're gonna fix it. I don't have any data to support this, but I do think that actually, I love that intro. Early, I think you might be able to prevent some inst- or some arthritis down the road. If I can keep his head centered at 18 or 20, you know, I have a much better shot of minimizing some arthritis when he's 40 and 50. I
1: yeah, think. no, I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I do think that posterior labral tear to the offensive lineman is the slap tear to the pitcher. They yeah. all have. them. Right? Yeah, that's fair. And, yep. And so it's just yeah. a matter of kind of what they're able to get through. Um, But I agree with that. But let's not dwell on your football giant's career. Let's focus on your Mets' career. And so you do this repair for the St. John's kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you said there's a little bit of art there. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just back up for a second. Why, why are you hanging out with Japanese doctors? When does that happen?
0: Yeah, that's yeah. these various. Uh, I met Sagaya at the International Congress of Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons in Nagoya, Japan, in probably 2000. 10 or 11 or so I can't remember we could look up when exactly that day was but we were on a symposium on the throwing athlete, and he gave the talk and picked his brain and so how do I he's around he comes to the San Diego shoulder course he was at a couple years ago Um, he'll you know you'll
1: see him at the academy okay how do I get that invite
0: What's to the to uh, International Congress yes. of Shoulder and Elbow. Yeah, so a long quick, long quick plug. It's in Rome. Um, it's, a, it's the week leading up to mid-Atlantic shoulder and elbow. So you can go to Rome, do International Congress of Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons, and then fly right into mid-Atlantic
1: shoulder and elbow on that Friday. Well, I am free that weekend. So that's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah. Did he talk about pitch counts in Japan that don't exist?
0: Yeah, I have not, not talked to him about that.
1: Okay. Bring that up next time you see him. Okay. So you repair, um, the St. John's shoulder, right? Yeah. Um, how long is this guy in a sling?
0: So I put him, so everybody that I do soft tissue work on in terms of repair, they're in a sling for four weeks. So I put and him in a sling for four weeks and in him, if I'm worried about, um, you know, that he has some micro instability, I won't even do pendulums. I'm not really worried about that right away. Um, I just want, I want to labor on the heel. So he can do distal range of motion, I think I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are on it. We do a ton of BFR, so they'll do a, a, all sorts of BFR. You know, he'll get the bl- blood pumping on a bike the day after surgery. Um, so we'll keep him in shape the best that we can.
1: Yep. Love that. Love BFR. Uh, are you doing BFR? You're doing BFR on his shoulder?
0: I wouldn't do no. I think even lower body BFR, you'll get some systemic re- response. So we'll put the tourniquets on his legs and do some squats and things like that. So Can
1: I put a BFR on his shoulder?
0: I probably would not do it for the first four weeks. So okay. on that shoulder, on that arm, and let them do curls or so like that. I just would just let it all calm down. Tell me why. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I don't, I don't have, I don't feel that strongly about it. We could have a conversation, and you could tell okay. me you want to do it, and you could tell me that, convince me that you could do it safely, and you could probably talk me into
1: doing it. Okay, it's, cool. Uh, um, isometrics on that shoulder. When does that start?
0: Yeah. So I mean, you could start waking the cup. Co- so I typically. They're in the sling for four weeks. We do some lower body BFR. You've talked me into doing some BFR in his arm. He could start doing some uh, external and internal rotation, uh, isometrics as soon as his pain's controlled enough to do it. So it's probably about two weeks or so. Awesome. Do that with BFR. That
1: that seems to make the most sense. Do that with BFR and electric stim if you're talking about waking stuff up, right? Sure. Um, Man, you got to move back to Baltimore. This is easy. (laughs) <laughs> um, okay. okay so, so that's football. awesome then when, when is he picking, picking up, a up a baseball
0: yeah he's not pay- I mean we're talking four months or so is when he's picking up a baseball to throw so we're doing four weeks in the sling we're doing between four weeks and you know 12 weeks we're getting motion back he'll probably get it back a little sooner And then uh, and then we're talking about instituting the whole overhead rehab program so we're yeah we're working on Um, uh, his strength, working on scapula, we're working on, uh, like you said, the manual strengthening throughout his entire range of motion. We're then going to two-handed plyos, and then we're going to one-handed plyos, and we're going to overhead plyos. And he kind of add that all up, and he's probably ready to pick up a baseball somewhere between four to five months or so, provided, though, that he's testing out. You know, like we're having our therapist, they're doing a couple different objective tests on him. You know, he's getting to about 90% of the opposite side in terms of his strength. So we can start thinking about an interval throwing program at that point.
1: Awesome. And what is the number one complication you're worried about post-op?
0: Well, I'm always worried, as much as I said I'm not. uh, There's always a little bit in the back of your mind, frozen shoulder, or some Mm. stiffness that we can't quite get back. Um, It's not usually a huge problem. I mean, I think the big thing for me is that they just do too much too soon. It's not so much a – I think people are eager – um, to get back, they kind of think that if I tell them, "Hey, listen, you're going to see the therapist every other day, and this is going to be a, you know, nine month thing," they say they're going to see the therapist every day, and it's going to be a four and a half month thing, and that's really not the way it works uh, typically. Yeah. Um, and I get a little concerned that they just do too much too soon, and that they, they fire up an inflammatory response in their shoulder, and then they're shut down for another two weeks, not making progress, but nursing themselves back from the setup that they from the setback they had.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I see a ton of that. Um, I totally agree with that frozen shoulder. It makes me nervous, but if you're doing your stuff, right. um, you shouldn't see it. Now, what percentage of these athletes get back on the mound that you've seen?
0: It really is. I mean, I, I've, so to put things in perspective here, um, just doing slap repairs on these patients, I do think it's, cons- my experience has been pretty consistent with the literature, which is that, you know, it's like, Four out of five, you can get back to some degree, though some of them still complain of some pain here and there. You know, it might even be, truth be known, it might even be a little worse than that. Um, You know, I think that with the nip-tuck anteriorly, we're starting to get, I'm starting to see a little anecdotal success, but not with the numbers nearly necessary to say with confidence that, like, we have starting to solve this problem here.
1: Yeah. Do me a favor. Explain to me exactly what a nip-tuck is.
0: Yeah, well, that's the, that's the middle glenohumeral ligament. So it's an anchor anterior to the biceps in the anterior superior quadrant of the, uh, the glenoid. And it's just taking a little of the middle glenohumeral ligament, tighten it up so that the whole sail raises up. So you're just creating a little – you're raising the hammock just a little bit anteriorly through the middle glenohumeral ligament.
1: And are you waiting for that to heal up? Like is that your sling use?
0: Yes, yeah, yes. That and the, the you know, the the repair that we've done on the posterior superior labrum as well. I mean the tears on the posterior superior labrum. Yep. That's where you, you're you're doing your actual labrum to bone repair and you're debriding the cuff a little too, there's no doubt. So
1: Okay, now is there ever any room or thought in your big brain that maybe we start doing Tino on this population?
0: Yeah, I don't I mean I'm not So that would, if you go into it, you're going to say that the pathophysiology of a slap is more the Burkhart Morgan. They get a twist of the biceps, and it's the biceps that rips it off. I think that that, it probably happens. I mean, I think that a slap tear is kind of probably like a rash. There's a couple different things that can cause the same clinical manifestation, Right. Um, but I think that by far the more common symptomatic slap tears are have pertain to the internal impingement that happens through anterior microinstability. So I don't I mean, I do think I don't think the biceps is a completely vestigial structure. I think that the biceps play some role. I don't believe it it's indiscriminate slaughter. Um, but um, I do think that I, I' try to save it if there's no clear pathology involving the biceps tendon. So, sure.
1: And if they have fraying, um, say a thrower has fraying of their bice- long head, mm-hmm. their labrum's in decent shape. Are you ever doing a tenodesis? Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. If you go in there, you don't have another good reason for their pain, particularly if they had a good response from a biceps tendon injection somewhere along the way. So they had a good response, temporary pain comes back. And you get in there and you're seeing that the whole thing's beat red or the whole thing is, you know, starting to get frayed. Then, yeah, I don't. I mean, again, I chalk that up to the whole, hey, it is what it is. You tried to avoid a surgery. Here you are. You're going to do whatever you see you think the problem is, and you're going to hope for the best when it's all said and done, you know, yeah. understanding, you know, understanding that again, these are, these are probably unfortunately people though, that are starting to naturally be selected out of the 0. 0.0001 genetic gene pool that's happening to be able to play the sport at a high level.
1: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. The whole picture sounds insanely bleak. So tell me, tell me where we go or what do you want to research today? That's going to help us in five years. That's going to help these shoulder patients.
0: So I, so it's a good question. I mean, I, so here's what I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in how the training affects this. Okay. I'm very interested in, and I think here's the conundrum. I think that we have with baseball training right now is I think that just like the rehab has gotten very good at being able to avoid a lot of historically popular surgeries like slap repairs. I also think that the performance aspect has gotten so good that these people are building muscle strength and they are throwing the ball at ridiculous velocities right now. And I think what happens is that, and you could say, so weighted balls is a good example. It's I think a hot topic, right? I think it's, it's effective. It works. It gains velocity there's other ways you can gain velocity too, but there are some concerns that maybe it predisposes you to injury. And I think understanding whether or not it's actually the mere act of throwing a weighted ball that contributes to a shoulder and elbow injury, or if it's the fact that it's actually effective and it's the rapid ascent of your performance or your skills that actually puts you at risk. Okay. Cause I I think it's probably more the latter with some exceptions. And I think what happens is when people get this rapid increase in their skills, their body hasn't quite, they haven't built a foundation underneath that enough to support it. You know, it's almost like their skills are outstripping their maturity or their physical body or so. So I think understanding that interplay between sure, we want to have a quest for accelerated performance, but being able to then, concomitantly build a base under these people such that their body's able to accommodate it is really the struggle that I have or that we have with the Mets, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, well, now you're talking about prevention, which is my language. That's awesome. Um, It's interesting with the weighted ball world, those injuries do have an uptick. They just have an uptick mid-season. It's not like immediate. And so maybe that supports a little bit of what you're saying, which is they get this increase of range potentially, speed of the glenohumeral joint and they just don't know how to control it for, yeah. for any amount of volume, um, that, so that makes a lot of sense. What about surgically? Do you think we have some type of surgical intervention that's on the horizon that can help these guys?
0: It's a good question. I mean, I think fine tuning, going back and harping on a little bit, the you know, so there's a couple of things. I think harping on that micro anterior instability problem. I don't know if my nip talk idea is the be all end all. I do think that there probably are some ways to probably at the micro. The, the microscopic level kind of akin to what thermal did, but not kill, you know, have it safer than thermal. That to me would be a very intriguing proposition. And then, and then I think too, I think the cuff is, um, is a problem. I mean, you mentioned a bleak picture for the labrum. I mean, the cuff has an even more bleak picture. If you start to operate on somebody thinking that it's their cuff that's causing their problem. I mean, really the hallmark is that you never repair a rotator cuff. Cause the minute you repair a rotator cuff, yeah, you know, chances are you're probably going to sock them down too much and they're not going to have that clearance posteriorly. They're, they're going to lose the internal impingement is the bottom line. And they're not and some of that internal impingement is adaptive and necessary for them to be able to play. So finding that fine line between let's say you get it. So finding that fine line between what percentage of a cuff tear is enough to justify operating on and then being able to operate on it and fix it in a way that doesn't over constrain them is something that, I mean, it's, um, that's a huge, I mean, if we could figure that out, that'd be, that would really prolong a lot of people's careers, there's no doubt, because that's been the death for a lot of throwers.
1: It, is there a world for biologics here? Is you, We didn't even mention those.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think, um, yeah, I, there is a ton of room for improvement in terms of our ability to provide biologics for those undersurface cuff tears, you know, or some of the muscle strains that we see, or even if there's a way to, You know tighten up the capsule or so with some form of biologics or so i'm all for it i'll be honest i do not think i mean we do a fair amount of prp um we do it because we don't have anything else to do and we do it because we hope maybe there's a chance that it it helps i'm not i don't think that the prp is the be-all end-all like that's the beginning it's not the end of our biologic treatment
1: so Yeah, I think there's a lot to to learn there, right? And and how different yeah. PRP is from stem cells and, and a host of things, because SLAP repairs clearly ain't ain't the future. Yeah, um, no, no, that's right. So totally eye opening. Um, you did share with me one piece that I'd love to share with the audience. Your outlook on operating in baseball players on shoulders versus elbows. That phrase that I'm going to put on the next True Sports T-shirt is what.
0: It's, you never operate on a shoulder. You always operate on an elbow
1: says the shoulder surgeon. I love that. (laughs) I love that. Um, okay. You have been insanely generous with your time. Um, I'm going to be very rapid with our lightning round and ask for very quick answers so that we, we get to know a little bit more, um, about you and about your outlook. Ready? All right. Okay. Best thing about Baltimore, Maryland. And don't say crabs.
0: (laughs) Uh, Johns Hopkins football. (laughs) <laughs> good.
1: That's a good freaking answer. Okay. Orthopedically speaking, what have you changed your mind on in the last three years?
0: Don't, don't operate on slabs.
1: There you go. What do you wish orthopedic surgeons were better at?
0: Um, ta- not treating the MRI and taking all of the parts of the information into consideration, the history, the physical examination, and what the patient's goals are.
1: Yeah. I love that. Who taught you that? That's... It's not 101 because docs docs just operate on MRIs too often. So someone was an influence on you. Who was that?
0: Yeah, Russ Warren. Russ Warren's the influence. Obviously. Russ Warren's my mentor. He is, I mean, he won't look at imaging until he goes and sees the patients. He won't. He refuses to allow the residents and fellows to do that. So she, he doesn't want to jade him. Where's
1: that guy? HSS?
0: Yeah, yeah. So Russ Warren was the... Um, He's the orthopedic surgeon for the Giants for 40 years or so. Yeah, just a father figure in the world of sports medicine.
1: Tell Murphy to get that guy to Mesas. I mean, that would be cool. Was,
0: uh, was he there? He's been there. Uh, I don't think he's gone in a while, but he's yeah. been there before.
1: That is, so, but even just that, not looking at the image before you see him. First of all, yeah. that's our world, obviously, but not sure. the norm. Um, okay, awesome. Um, next, you could have a beer with one past or present athlete. Who is it?
0: It'd be really fun to have with mickey mantle is what i'd say
1: i can't believe a chicago boy didn't say jordan
0: yeah 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 I yeah jordan be, it'd be too intense, be
1: so, too intense. intense. Yeah, so intense so intense uh, but mantle i mean the guy had a beer or two in his life why mantle
0: yeah just because so i grew up uh watching this home run derby it was like sponsored by geritol and it was back when espn didn't have enough programming. So they throw, throw these old, uh, reruns on a mantle. Just, I mean, he wanted something like, you know, if you won, then you'd go on to the next show and the next show and the next show. Love and he that. was on it forever. And I'm like, I love this guy. This guy's awesome. So oh, I love that, that. child watching old school run derby shows.
1: Yes. Um, on ESPN classic, I lived on that stuff. Um, yeah. okay. Awesome. Uh, what book changed your life?
0: Uh, I think sapiens is a great book. So,
1: so I love that book. Yeah. Did, you, did you watch like the new um, Apocalypse stuff?
0: I, no, I did not see that.
1: I, I, it's just fascinating to see how well or not well that jives with Harari's take on Sapiens. So let me know when you're done watching that. All okay, right,
0: appreciate that.
1: How many hours a night do you sleep?
0: Dep- so here's the issue. I probably average six hours a night, but there's a wide standard deviation. So that standard deviation can be anywhere from two hours in the night, or it could be then I I catch up at some point and I'll sleep for eight or nine hours.
1: What's keeping you up at night?
0: Uh, Well, work is one, Uh, you know, just being at Mets games and then showing up at six o'clock in the morning to start my day the next day. There's not a lot of time to get to and from City Field in that case. That's usually the, the, the big thing.
1: But you recover really well. I've seen you present at like seven in the morning. Yeah. You, that's a that's a secret town of yours. If you tore your, rally. oh, can. you can rally. <laughs> if you tore your rotator cuff, who's fixing it? You can't say Russ Warren.
0: Oh, jeez, I was gonna say Russ Warren. It's got to no. be Russ Warren.
1: No, who else? 100%. Who else?
0: Oh, uh, geez, I can't. There's a lot of really good. So I'd have a team of surgeons is what I'd have <laughs> for that so. very
1: important shoulder. OK, yeah,
0: that's exactly right. It'd be like the president of the United States with a team of doctors all. all. <laughs> uh,
1: I love that. OK, <laughs> that, and... actually
0: would be, that would be actually the worst case scenario. That's right. If I want uh, 15 opinions, I'd ask 10 surgeons, you know,
1: <laughs> how tight would that re- shoulder be after that yeah. repair? Um, OK, now, if you yeah. tore your cuff, who is rehabbing it?
0: You, of course. I come like down to Baltimore.
1: Oh, I appreciate what? it. And not for the crabs, because I ain't taking you out for crabs.
0: Go yeah. um, to a Johns Hopkins football game.
1: I love it. <laughs> I love it. No, lacrosse, dude. Lacrosse. Yeah. Um, Larry, I appreciate your time greatly. You have been awesome, a wealth of knowledge. Um, tell us I saw you got some Instagram presence, but where are you active um, that my audience can interact?
0: yeah i I mean yeah instagram's one i think it's just uh galata.lawrence uh you could check that out i don't i'll be honest you're going to be you're probably going to see a lot of pictures of fish and my kids and you'll (laughs) see a couple pictures uh some presentations here and there um but i don't bombard it with um yeah like um useful facts and tips and tricks and things like that
1: there's way more information on you on pubmed and that i respect
0: There you go. That's where we spend most of our time. That's right.
1: Um, I love it. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for knowledge. We're going to do this again. We're going to talk about cuff pathology and it's going to be awesome. And I can't thank you enough for joining us.
0: No, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun, Yoni. Thanks a lot. Great show. We'll talk soon. Take care.